Thanks for listening to the Underdog Podcast presented by the Riley Decker Companies. Please do us a favor and help us change and improve lives by subscribing and giving us a rating on the platform of your choice. Thank you. Well, today we have a special guest with us, Shane Snow. Welcome to the Underdog Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a blessing. Um, my mentor, we were just talking about Ryan Hawk, the Learning Leader Show, has had you on his show three times, and uh, it's an honor for you. I think it's the first podcast for you in this this calendar year. You're joining us. Yep. It's it's a huge honor, so thank you so much. Oh, it, it's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm having less and less time to, to talk about this stuff these days, but I'm always excited to, and uh, you guys have a great show, so I'm yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'll also say, Ryan Hawk, I don't know how much he talks about Dave Matthews Band on his show. I haven't really heard him bring it up. The last time I saw him, he was on his way to like his 40th Dave Matthews Band concert. Um, so, you know, someone should tease him about that. Yeah, I know. I think he needs to get back to doing more podcasts and stop listening to Dave Matthews so much. Stop and, and going to concerts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he might be on the, the tour van with uh, Dave Matthews. Who knows? <laughs> but I know you are. I, I mean, you mentioned um, not doing as much media because you're an extremely busy person, you know, entrepreneur, explorer, journalist. The name goes on. You have some of the best books out there. I love dream oh, teams amongst many, you know, smart cuts, a storytelling, storytelling edge. Um, but really what I wanted to focus on, and I listened to a bunch of content for us at the underdog. Um, the reason why, and I'll share this picture is, um, you really made me reminisce. You're probably like, what is this building with a truck? This is a back corner of a mall plaza. Uh, and I used to have a paper sign there. It's how we started our business. Very tough times, the midst of a a down uh, economy and we started a staffing mm -hmm. business. And as I read through your book, Dream Teams, and I came to, and I didn't understand your full story, but when it came to the epilogue, that last 10 minutes of the book, what I read, it impacted me almost more than any book has ever because it told me your story. And your storytelling mm -hmm. made a huge impact and we'll go into how that, in, you know, but for me to understand your life's journey, which at times I consider an underdog moment, for me in my life was starting a business, you know, similar you know i know you had said with two friends and credit cards for me it was a back corner of a mall plaza with a paper sign and in a very tough time in 2009 and uh, yeah. i've done so much reflection on that moment especially after reading your book and understanding your story of how you know you went from you know basically being homeless right um depressed mm -hmm. divorced so much adversity um, and, and going into and accomplishing so many different things in your career. So I know that was a long winded spewed, um, tangent there on my end, but at the end of the day, um, I want to focus on you, Shane, I want to focus so that people okay. can understand the journey of Shane snow, not just what they see on GQ or fast company or the New Yorker, or New York times, what has led, I think, a lot of your stuff um, into a lot of your great content and insight is maybe your journey. So can, can you give everyone going back to, I know you said it was like the worst day of your life, how you ended that book, maybe give some insight on your life and, and how you kind of went from being homeless to where you are? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. So it, it's funny because that was one of the hardest things I ever wrote. You know, it had been years since since then, but actually putting that story down on paper was very difficult and emotional and also very liberating. You know, afterwards feeling like, okay, I've been able to put into words this part of my story 
now I can live with it more than I thought I could. And, uh, and, and also, yeah, you wouldn't believe once you start sharing your story, who comes out of the woodwork to say, I've been through similar things, or I had no idea and I would have been there for you. And, you know, uh, that the, the outpouring of, uh, I think love and commiseration that happens when you share, you know, a very personal story like that, um, is, is wonderful. So I, you know, I'm very grateful for that, but the, the story that, you know, for, for anyone who's listening, that's like, what is this story? Um, the story is that I had found myself uh, homeless. Uh, now it's, you know, a decade ago now. Um, after, well, at the same time, when a lot of people around the world thought that I was incredibly successful. So I had, you know, started out, uh, you know, grew up in Idaho, kind of in the middle of sort of nowhere outside of a, a small city. And um, my dad was an engineer and I grew up, you know, brainy and nerdy and, um, and, but wanted to you know, get out of Idaho and, uh, you know, move to the big city and make something of myself. And short version is I became a journalist and then an entrepreneur. And, you know, before I had turned 30, I was starting to get these, you know, 30 under 30 awards and, uh, you know, these accolades for having started a business and, you know, helped a lot of people make a lot of money and, uh, and back home. Uh, anytime I'd come back home, people would say, oh, you live in New York, like you're successful, you're, you know, this and that. And, you know, it's like you get sort of put on this pedestal and everyone has imposter syndrome. Um, you know, no matter where you're at, you're like, yeah, but there's other more successful people and do I really deserve it? And so that's always lingering. But, you know, I was feeling good about what I had been accomplishing at, you know, such a young age. And then uh, some things kind of, uh, a lot of, I guess, negative potential energy had built up in, in my life and, uh, and things sort of unraveled all at once where I had gotten married real young and, you know, uh, that relationship fell apart and it fell apart in a way that left me, uh, like both of us very, not well off, but me very, very depressed and, uh, and also broke and ashamed because where I come from, you know, I had kind of this idea that getting divorced was a huge failure. One of the bigger failures, I come from a big family, families, everything. And, uh, and of course that's not what my, how my family dealt with this. They've dealt with with love, you know, they, they love me and, you know, it's like, uh, you know, they want to make sure I'm okay. But I felt like this was a huge failure on my part as an older brother, who my siblings took up to, and, you know, all of my family and community. Uh, so I was embarrassed about that anyway. And, uh, and also I was very, very ashamed that, you know, the world is seeing me win these awards and I have, you know, all of these employees and we're helping tens of thousands of, uh, of people make money through this business. Uh, the company was helping freelancers get work. And, uh, and yet I here can't afford rent. And so instead of asking for help, eventually I did end up asking for help. People sort of found out what was going on, but instead for the first several weeks, uh, instead of asking for help, or telling people what was going on, I just pretended like everything was fine. And this, I, I fully blame myself, but uh, but also can you blame a person who is feeling all this pressure and kind of putting it on themselves and having to live up to this sort of, you know, picture of a person who is, you know, is sort of larger than, than real life. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm 29 years old and I'm secretly divorced and secretly homeless. And I ended up sleeping in the office, a lot. I ended up, you know, kind of crashing with friends who had 
vague ideas that I was going through marriage problems, not knowing that it was worse than that. And, uh, and I, you know, slept in the park a few times and I slept on the train a few times and, and, uh, and was just in this very, very bad spot. I'd never been so down and, um, you know, uh, the kinds of thoughts that pop in your head during that, that kind of experience are, are very, very dark. And, um, eventually what happened is a couple of, of dear friends, you know, helped lift me out of that one in particular that I, I mentioned in this epilogue was, a uh, kind of a, a veteran journalist who had been a mentor of mine. Um, and, uh, he called me up about a story he was writing, wanting to get my take. And he has this kind of great sm- scratchy voice. And he's like, Shane, what do you think of this thing or whatever that I'm writing about? And then he could tell something was wrong. And I was, I had my backpack. I was in a plaza kind of walking around New York, like on a Saturday, I think it was where it's like, I got nowhere to go, nowhere to be. And he calls me up and then he realizes something's wrong. He's like, hold on, tell me what's going on. There's nothing's wrong. And, uh, and I finally, it was a day that I finally was like, I need to talk to someone about this. And so I came out with it and broke down and, you know, cried on the phone with this guy. And, uh, you know, and this is someone who really cared about me. And he was like, first of all, you know, you don't need to be suffering alone. You know, everyone goes through hard times and you have people who love you. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you, you think you're not as successful as you are. Like for, that's the part that doesn't matter. The part that matters is that you're going to, you know, uh, you're alive and, uh, you know, and, and you're going to be part of our lives. And, um, you know, and he said this thing that, that really impacted me, which is it's gonna suck. It's gonna hurt. Um, and, uh, and that's okay. Not it's, you know, you're going to be fine. No, like you're, this is going to sting for a long time and <laughs> it's going to be okay. Um, and that is okay. And he, you know, my favorite quote actually from him, I don't know if I wrote this down, but he, I, it, I can hear him say it still he says, you know, I'm a big believer in the institution of marriage and a bigger believer in the institution of divorce. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's what I needed to hear at the time. Um, and then, you know, People helped me out. It took me a few months to be able to pay for a deposit uh, to get back into an apartment. But meantime, you know, one of my co-founders let me stay with him and his wife for a few weeks. And one of my kind of pseudo friends, sort of second circle friends, let me stay with him for a week. And after that, we've become very, very close friends. We talk every week uh, to this day. And um, yeah, you know, being lifted up by that. So I wrote that at the end of Dream Teams because I realized that what I needed to get through the hardest time of my life was the team of people who, uh, you know, I needed to loop into the problem solving, essentially, you know, to put it in sort of business terms, team of people I needed to lift me out of this situation. That was some of it was my own making. Some of it was just, this is how life goes, but either way, I was not going to solve this on my own. And it was opening up and letting people offer their gifts and their resources, uh, to help me through this. And that's precisely the message of dream teams is it's the different things we bring to the table that help us overcome the things that we can't do on our own. Right. And I think you, talk about common threads, common patterns. And one thing for the underdog podcast, I would say is just that those that are going through adversity, it's not, you can't be alone. You do need it. It's, it is a team, right. To, to help lift you up. And I think you were mentioned David Carr and yep. there was an apprentice Aaron, if I got it right, the spiritual yeah. giant who helped you. And I think it just takes she's, she's a village. Yeah. 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 She, she got me into like breathing exercises and you know, and that's not something I'd ever done. And, and there's a whole lot more that she did, you know, during that time, but it's like, you need that. 
you know, the things that you don't think of that are going to help you get through or, you know, or become better. Oh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, thinking about her makes me really happy. Yeah. And, great. and I was uh, fortunate enough to run into a, a guy named Jay Glazer this summer um, through a, a common friend. And he just came out with a book called Unbreakable. Um, and, and he does stuff for Fox Sports and football and different things. But what the whole thing, he talks about the gray, right? Those dark places that those are in a bad spot in versus... Unfortunately, a lot of those uh, folks at time will take their life, right? Um, and I think you were, like you said, you went to some of those dark gray areas, mm-hmm. you know, sitting on that bench in, in a park or in the subway. Um, what would you say to some of our listeners that are maybe in that dark gray, dark, dark areas like you were? Other maybe, um, you know, tangible things to take away. Obviously, you said it takes takes you just reaching out, right? You just mentioned that you needed to make that it was time to vocalize. Like what, what made you, was it just got to that, that edge where you said, Hey, it's, it's one way or the other. I needed to tell someone and David Carr just said call, um, or any recommendations for someone that is going through what you went through? Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of things to say. The, the first is that I can't emphasize enough how people are, people want to see you make it. People want to see it happen. Even if, you know, you've done things that you're ashamed of, even if you've hurt, you know, uh, at the end of the day, no matter how, what we've been through or what we've put each other through, people want to see you make it. They want to see you uh, be okay. And that's, I think that is human nature, but especially people who know you and care about you. The kind of person who doesn't want to see you make it is so rare. And, uh, you know, some people will have more capacity for, you know, kind of being there for you when you need it uh, and more capacity for love than others. And I would say, find those people. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I can't emphasize enough. I mean, you know, the, there's a reason, even, even if it's strangers, you know, suicide hotlines exist because talking to someone helps, you know, knowing that a human beings care about, you know, you making it really helps. Uh, the other thing I'll say is, um, well, I have, I have had a couple of friends who've gone through experiences uh, like this where they've gotten to that dark place where they're wondering, you know, is it worth going on or not? And I think that itself is human. Like there's nothing wrong with you if you know your mind goes there. I, I think there's, you know, there's psychology research around this. So, you know, you're standing on, you know, the top of a building and you're looking down and you're like, I could just jump. And even if you're not like, you know, depressed, that thought pops in your head, that is like a weird, freaky human instinct but everyone has that capacity so like don't freak out if you're like you know if you're you're in such a dark place you're like i can't imagine a future that's better than this that is that's something that you know that happens at the same time um yeah so two things one is a dear friend of mine who's going through this sort of thing um told me that the best thing that anyone ever told him when he was in a really dark place is you are in charge of uh of whether you go on or not. And that's your decision. And actually there's something empowering about that of like, you have the right to, you know, to live the life that, you know, to live your life. And, uh, and that is only something that, that is a decision, you know, for you at the same time, we all want you in our lives. And, uh, you know, that was the advice that helped him. That might not be the advice for everyone, but I found that very empowering that like, it's, uh, we have, we have that power. The other thing, I think the most important thing um, was articulated 
or the most important answer I'd give to this is it was articulated by uh, a friend of mine who just co-authored a book called uh, The Gap in the Game. Um, this uh, Ben Hardy is his name, and I'm right now while on the spot, I'm blanking on his co-author's name that, who coined this. Um, but uh, in this book, they articulate this idea that so much of our happiness and and sort of the the inverse, our you know our lack of happiness can be chalked up to what we're comparing our current state to. Are we comparing our current state to what it could be? You know, the gap between where we are and where we wish we would be, which a lot of great stories are about that gap. You know, drama is in that and also devastation, sadness is in that gap. Um, and that is exactly where, you know, looking back, that's where I was. You know, I if you look at it objectively, I'm someone who had has a degree and has the capacity to get a job and has people who can you know, float me a couch until I can get back on my feet. I, you know, had a company that was making money. So what if I wasn't, you know, taking that much of a salary? Like I probably could negotiate that. I had opportunities to make, it's not like I had to live in a dumpster forever. You know, it's not like that's my only option. Um, and, uh, you know, I come from a family who loves me. There's all of these things that I had, but what I was focusing on was here's where I should be. I should be the successful 30 under 30, you know, on the cover of magazines, uh, making millions of dollars, but where I am is I'm currently homeless and a failure. And measuring myself against that standard, all I could see was that gap, and that is incredibly depressing and disheartening. Um, where what the, uh, the the gap in the gain is about is measuring yourself against where you what you have gained and you know where you have come from. So the other side of that, I have start for me as someone who dreamed of living in the big city, and you know. Uh, building my own business where I had started was a kid living in farm country, you know, moving pipe to water potatoes. And now I live in New York city, you know, and I have built a company. I've have helped all these people and I have gotten these awards. So what if I'm not measuring up to certain things now? Like I did all of those things and uh, you know, and I, I have gained people in my life. I have friends, I have, mentors, I have people who I can call up who will help me if I ask for it, even if I'm not asking for it, I have that. I've gained so much. And uh, so looking at your life, your position in space and time, from that standpoint, here's where I've come that paints a picture of gratitude. Or I think there are people that have a lot less than I did at that moment in my life, who are much happier. <laughs> and, uh, and, and people who could see that story and say, why would you be so depressed? The reason is because I'm measuring myself against this gap of where I think I should be. And, uh, and there's all sorts of research on happiness that sort of backs this up. You know, people who are doing okay in places where everyone else is doing great tend to be more depressed than people who are doing badly where everyone else is doing badly. It's like we're not measuring ourselves against this, you know, this unequal standard. So that that's what I would say. When you find yourself in that place, if you can at all look back behind you in your journey and say, what have I gained? Where did I start? Um, you know, maybe you've stepped back, uh, you know, taken two steps forward and one step back, but that's one step forward from where, where you, you were, what are the things that you have to be grateful for that you have gained? Even if you have lost that I think is a very, very heartening exercise. And then adding on top of that, you have all the power in the situation. This is your life. You are the one with the power that is very helpful. And then, yeah, people are there to help you who want to see you make it. That's, I actually went through, like, you're talking to me, you know, through you as far as 
we we've had tremendous growth within our company. We're in the staffing space. I think contently, like I said, helping people find work similar, yeah. similar delivery as what we do. Um, and we're having tremendous growth, but one of our, you know, people not in the same niche, but in the same industry of staffing went to a billion dollars. And so I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, I thought we were doing well and we went to 150 and they're at heading towards a billion. And it's just different business models, but the same thing, my gratitude. That's why I actually, when I, when I went back and I'm thankful that we did this, I said, you know what? Like we have come a long way. My gratitude to where we are is significant or should be a lot more significant. But like you said, the gap of what I was comparing to was yeah. this billion dollar company. And then I felt like somewhat like depressed and I should be incredibly blessed. I am you, incredibly you blessed. Appreciate. I should be celebrating. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, these guys went to a billion and I'm at 150. But then, you know, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, like you said, if you're not really in the right mind space or you're understanding that gap in variance and it affected my mood, you know, and I'm not as good as a leader. Um, if I'm not self-aware of those things and my lose my gratitude or excitement or appreciation for those that are, you know, working and getting and doing a great job. Yeah. Well, and I would say, so, uh, Dan Sullivan is the, the author of, uh, of the gap and the, the co-author Dan Sullivan and, and Ben Hardy, I should say. And I think Dan Sullivan's the one that kind of coined this gap in the game term. But uh, I will say that, you know, we're talking about underdogs. It can be very motivating to see someone who's at that billion when you're at, you know, 150 and say, I, I have this professional motivational jealousy of what they've accomplished. But if that's coming from a place of, of insecurity, if I'm not happy unless I do that, you know, that's a different thing. I, I think both can, can exist. You can be grateful for where you've come and celebrate and focus on the gain while also being motivated by the gap. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that, Good that, that can happen at the same time, but it's, you know, we're, it's two different things if we're talking about, uh, you know, goals and stretching and pushing yourself, or if we're talking about making up for the inner insecurity and unhappiness. <laughs> so, yeah. If the ego yeah. starts talking, well, that guy did this and it's not, it's about, like you said, not the right. No, that's a great point. Thank yep. you for, for laying that out. Um, some other things when I was one thing I wanted to touch upon was superordinate goals. I found that, mm. you know, in, in in dream teams, I found that chapter to be incredibly um, interesting of, of of how they all bonded together and fought for the same cause and overcome greater odds. Talk about an underdog story, right? Um, yeah, is is how they they banded. So maybe touch upon the actual story. I know I didn't give a whole lot of detail there, but like maybe we just talked a lot of individuals that are having, you know, certain significant challenges in their life. What about groups, right? That need to overcome mm -hmm. longer odds of why a superordinate goal is extremely important and, and maybe touch upon that if you don't mind. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you pulled that out of, uh, that, that's one of my favorite principles as well from the, from the book. A lot of people like to, to talk about the Wu-Tang Clan stuff and some of the, the, the stories earlier on in the book. Trust me, I wanted to um, talk about the Wu-Tang Clan too, but I was like, <laughs> there's something about that, that the, the war down there that was, I was yeah. just fascinated with that I had no idea. I wish I would have, I wish I would have listened to history class. So the, the brief version of the story is that the War of 1812 was a war that, uh, that the U.S. fought against Britain where the, the Americans almost lost the country and became part of, of Britain again. And, uh, and the reasons are, you know, are, are a long story, but essentially 
this war boiled down to whether the British could invade New Orleans, uh, the city of New Orleans down south in Louisiana, and get upriver in the Mississippi so they could invade the U.S. from both sides. And New Orleans was like the last city standing and uh, completely outnumbered by this huge British armada that was coming for them. And the short version of the story is that a group of pirates and Choctaw braves and freed slaves and lawyers and uh, and Tennessee hunters all banded together and uh, and saved the city. And um, and the details are incredible. But basically what happened is these guys were outnumbered. I think it was like seven and a half to one odds, something like that. And, you know, they these were groups of people that didn't like each other or certainly didn't, you know, collaborate together. Um, you know, the pirates were not going to go and collaborate with the lawyers of New Orleans. And, um, you know, the Tennessee hunters were enemies of, you know, the American Indians, a lot of those tribes. And, you know, the freed slaves had just won their freedom and were being treated very badly by, uh, you know, the government of the state, even though in this part of the country, you know, they, they were free and they had their own militia. And like, why should we fight to save this city that has treated us so badly? And, uh, and basically what brought them together was the fact that preserving their collective home was more important than their dislike for each other or the fact that, uh, you know, they had different goals. And, uh, and then and basically what they did is they taught each other different things from, you know, the way that they built and fought. And, you know, the, the Choctaw warriors taught the Tennessee hunters how to do guerrilla warfare, the Tennessee hunters you know, taught them how to shoot uh, long rifles. And, um, you know, the pirates brought cannons to the city. And they, anyway, so all these things happened and, uh, and they, they shared their different heuristics for, um, you know, for building and fighting with each other. And that ended up being this very chaotic thing for the British to march into with their clean lines and, you know, and red coats and, um, you know, and usual way of fighting a war. They were fighting against this band of misfits that they just, uh, after a day of fighting, the losses on the British side were so high that they gave up the war. And that's why America is, is owned by America now and not by, by the UK. Um, and, uh, and so the story is incredible, but this principle of superordinate goals is illustrated in a very dramatic way in the story that, you know, the, the freed slaves of, uh, of New Orleans um, had their own priorities. You know, this group as a, you know, as a block, they didn't even have voting rights. Um, you know, they, they were trying to build neighborhoods and, uh, you know, and, and they had their own militia for a reason because they were at odds with the police and that all of these goals, but the goal of let's not let our city be destroyed and our country, you know, taken over by even less friendly at the time, you know, uh, rulers, that was a higher goal than, uh, you know, than their, their militia and, and all of those things. And same thing with the, you know, the Choctaws. They, they're, they're like, this. we are at odds with the American government in all these ways, but we also don't want to lose our home. Um, and, uh, you know, that story ends sadly when Andrew Jackson, you know, was, uh, was the general uh, who was leading this. And then he went on to actually do a lot of, uh, of negative things for that, for the American Indian uh, populations. And so that ends up with an ironic uh, and sad ending. But at the same time, he was fighting actively against American Indian tribes and then teamed up despite 
not wanting to with an American Indian tribe to, you know, save the city. So yeah, you know, in our lives, you know, with our teams, you say you're running a company, you have people from all different walks of life and you want people from different walks of life because they are bringing different mental tools to the party, you know, and that's going to help you overcome odds. That's exactly how the equation works. We all are bringing the same tools. Then, you know, we have uh, blind spots. We have missed opportunities. We have weak spots. And, uh, and so, you know, we want people in our companies to, to come with that, but people who are bringing different things and coming from different walks of life will have different things going on in their lives. You know, a, a company full of people who are all single uh, and then someone comes in and they have a family the person with the family has another priority, which is take care of the family. You know, we're going to happy hour. You know, we're going to stay out. We're going drinking till, you know, 8 p.m. I got to pick up my kids. Those things are at odds. Um, and uh, and so in the moment, the superordinate goal of, uh, of a group can be, uh, or of different people within a group can be very different things. And so as a leader of a group, uh, your job in many ways is to establish Goals that are that supersede everything that uh, allow everyone to kind of fit inside of uh, of that goal. So, you know, the let's the aliens are coming to take over the Earth. Our all of our goal is to save the Earth. Can you, as a leader, create uh, structures and and goals so that everyone? Yeah, our goal, and this is why purpose driven and mission driven companies are are so so awesome. Our goal is to help do good in the world. That is so much more powerful than my goal of wanting to get, you know, lunch at noon instead of 1230, (laughs) you know, helping people uh, can be a great superordinate goal. And then, you know, I use the example of, uh, you know, employees with families on purpose, someone's kids and someone's, you know, spouse might be the most important thing in their life. So as long as the superordinate goal of the group group does not conflict with that goal, of your family, then you're in good shape. So if my superordinate goal is my family, is, is to take care of my family, then underneath that, uh, there's going to be all sorts of other things. And if that second goal of, you know, help people and accomplish the mission of our company, which is helping take care of my family, because it's getting me, you know, an income. But if that doesn't mean I can't, you know, be home for dinner, then then we're good. So you, you want to make sure that the needs are met at the top of the list of goals, so that then the group can have the shared goals and, and press on them together. And those can overcome your, your goal of, you know, wanting to have sushi for lunch instead of eating at your desk some days. Um, and, uh, and that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I just fascinated. I recently got done obviously with, with your book in the last year or two, but then shoe dog by Phil Knight. And then we're reading as a company right now, uh, Daniel Coyle's uh, culture code. And it's oh, so fascinating to see the dynamics of a team. And you can even relate it to sports with an underdog or you look at the top 10 underdogs, Google it, you know, and one is, I think, highlight in your book, USA Hockey, right? Sometimes yep. not the most talented uh, individuals win. And we know that, whether it's in business and sports. But when it seems like they have that that superordinate goal, that clear vision, as you said, and even if they have differences, they they, you know, consistently understand like USA hockey, they, they wanted to, to beat the Russians, right. And, and win an Olympic gold, you know, or, you know, just like this year with the, in the Super Bowl with the Bengals, they want to, you know, they went four in whatever 16, you know, four and 12. And now they're vying for a Super Bowl because their quarterback yeah. and some of their people have a definitive goal and why not us mentality, right. They're, they're kind of going around the underdog approach 
Do you feel, you know, in a, a dream team or in those situations, like having what I would consider that chip on the shoulder being the underdog, it, it's a must to have that super earned goal. And is there anything else? I know you mentioned different things like intellectual humility, different other objectives within kind of your thought process that is part if someone's in a group, you know, company setting or small group setting, anything else that you'd want to add to that? Yeah, uh, great question. So the chip on the shoulder is a really interesting one because I think that can be a very motivating, you know, wanting to prove people wrong about you. Right. I, I think that there's a downside that, you know, it can blind you to, you know, doing the smart thing, right? Sure. Um, and uh, it can lead you to take risks that either pay off and the risk, you know, you get the high reward or that don't pay off. So, you know, there's, there's that. I think the chip on the shoulder on behalf of others can be really powerful. You know, I want to prove people wrong about me. It can be very motivating, but then, you know, there's this, it, it's gotta be me that, you know, succeeds. And that I think is a, is a limiting mentality, but I want to prove people wrong about this group of people is great because then your focus is on helping the group succeed, not helping you stand out. And I, I think about this with sports and, you know, talk about a couple of sports in the book, despite, you know, the sports that I am into are mostly like motorsports and, uh, you know, skateboarding. Um, but team sports, I think, are really fascinating. And motorsport actually is a huge team sport, but it's, you know, it's played a little differently. Team sports like hockey and basketball and football um, are, are fascinating because the, the way to win is by caring less about your individual stats than about your team stats. And that's that superordinate goal that we want to win the Super Bowl, even if it means that I don't win the MVP, you know, even if it means that I don't maximize, you know, my, you know, running, you know, rushing yards or whatever. Um, and um, I think that's, that's what you see, you know, in the, the, the hockey story that's in dream teams, um, on both sides, you know, both the, uh, the, when the miracle on ice happened and the Americans actually beat the Soviets in the, you know, in the, the Olympics. And when the red army came back, when, uh, basically this dream team of Soviet hockey players all got recruited by the NHL. And then a bunch of them ended up on the same team again, the way that they played. And what was so great about them is their individual stats were like, whatever, but their team always won. And, uh, and that's, I think that's speaking exactly to it. And, you know, you bring up intellectual humility, intellectual humility is a subset of humility in general. It's, uh, it's the humility to understand that the way you think is the right way may not be the right way. And, uh, and the ideas that come to you may not be the ideas that are always the best ones. They may be great. They may be the best now, but tomorrow they might not be the best ones. And you see teams that are truly, truly fantastic, like true dynasties they tend to, yeah, have great individual players, but the individual's goal of, you know, breaking the points record doesn't get in the way of the team's goal of winning. There's actually another great book. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I spent some time with the author. It's about, it'll come to me. I'll actually look it up while we talk, um, but it's about sports dynasties in history. You know, there's sports teams that like for a moment, they were the greatest ever, you know, Michael Jordan's on the bulls and right. for a couple of years, like they smash every record. But he looked at teams that that won for, you know, eight years. Right. You know, and what is it about those teams? And there's a whole bunch of things there. You know, one is they tend to uh, 
push the boundaries of the uh, the way things are supposed to be done. You know, they don't break the rules, but they figure out ways to within the rules. You know, do things differently. And another is they tend to um, the the one that I zeroed in on is they tend to care less about the individual stats than they do about the team stats. Yeah, I've, and then re- you know you ought to reward people based on the team stats in that case, so that the incentives are aligned. Right. The superordinate goal isn't you get the bonus if you you know you personally get the the big stats. I found uh, Shane it really interesting the Greg Popovich Spurs. He actually quantified he was transparent that if you pass the ball, it actually will probably cost you individual money. But I think he was so transparent. So if, if I think they quantified it, you know, and you might be able to help me with this, but. They they were talking about what it means to pass versus maybe shoot and how that might affect your contract and different things. Anyway, he did a mm-hmm. breakdown and Spurs are one of those teams I think had sustained excellence with, you know, um a lot of years a dynasty. And I found that very fascinating. And I look at, you know, Bill Belichick or even the Nick Sabans of the world from a sports perspective, I guess. And it seems like that transparency, you know breeds you know pot you know consistency and results mm-hmm. of like hey we are all in this together we're all going to pass because we're going to win and even though we're not compensated that way we're going to be unselfish because we know you know hey we all throw it on the table we're all willing to give to get the greater good and it seems like if they're all yeah. on that superordinate goal um but i found that he was he he quantified that it's like every time you, cool. pa- you pass it was like i don't know eight grand or something like that some of these contracts are crazy right but there, there was, there's a number that he was able to specifically even talk to his team about and said, you know, if you pass the ball, it, it will, it will probably cost you money, but this is why we need to do it. And as a greater good, you know, we're going to win and you might have sustainable income even personally, because you're going to be on winning teams and yeah. be able to uh, be compensated maybe long-term and if, if winning's important to you. Right. Or, you know, winning gives you visibility and then you get marketing contracts. So he was trying to, I think, quantify, try to not be. That's as, fascinating. So anyway, I don't know if you knew anything about, but I found that and I'd have to figure out where I actually and my brain is not working. I got dad brain this morning, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I want to look into that. I, I think, you know, the thing that comes to mind for me is if you were the one in charge, wouldn't you change it so that you, it doesn't cost you eight grand every time you pass if that's in the best interest of the team? I agree. Or wouldn't you come in and say, you know what? I'll pay you the eight grand back. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it, um, the, the book that I was trying to, I was blanking on the name, um, Sam Walker, who I, I love, great author. Um, the Captain Class is the name of this particular book of his that uh, is about sports dynasties. It's fantastic. It focuses a lot on what team captains do to create an environment uh, where that superordinate you know, goal of the team is, uh, is actually the superordinate goal of every individual as well. I love that. Love that. Is there any, we always ask book recommendations as we come towards the end here. Um, my teams always say, Hey, make sure you ask you now I went to, went to your website and you have the best mm-hmm. book recommendation. So I'm gonna put a plug in here, go to shanesnow.com. And if you go to the book section and you look about what books, I mean, it was incredible. I, I have, um, you know, uh, bad ADD and I'm sitting there thinking, Oh my gosh, these are all the, these are all the books I got to read. These are unbelievable. I heard this one. I did this one. And, and, Anyway, if you could say, I know you have an incredible book recommendation list for any different, you know, recommendation from, you know, let's just say it motivation to, you know, fiction to this, to that, what would you say, you know, from an underdog or a, maybe it's a motivation mindset, what is a book uh, that you would recommend right now? 
Yeah. Well, since we talked about David Carr earlier, I would say the night of the gun, which is his memoir. It's an addiction memoir um, is a, a fantastic book. I think, especially if, you know, if any of you listening here are in a dark place, he goes to the darkest of places and comes out of it. And, uh, and it's so well-written and he's such a, such a, such a lovely person. Um, that book is, is fantastic. And certainly it, it's a story of someone who becomes an underdog kind of because of how badly he uh, destroys his life and then climbs out of it. And, and it becomes a world famous uh, journalist for the New York times and the family man. And uh, yeah. And someone who's dearly missed the, I, I would say, so yeah, on my, my book list on my site, there's a bunch of good ones. But I, I have a list of life-changing books that is kind of at the top, and that one's on there. The the Tao of Wu. So we'll we'll put a plug in for the Wu Tang Clan. So Riza's book, the Wu Tang Clan, the the you know famous uh, rap group. Uh, the Riza is uh, was the leader, and he wrote this philosophy book slash memoir called the Tao of Wu, which is unbelievable. And uh, you know, I, I tell a little bit of their story from different angles from interviews uh in dream teams but if you want to hear the full Wu-Tang Clan story of how they came from nothing and uh and changed the world of music that one is amazing the other book I'll say that's on the list yeah I have too many recommendations but I always tell people to read a book about love by Jonah Lehrer um that is probably the most life-changing book the book I've recommended to more people in the last few years than any other it's um it's about I mean so he's a science writer who also um, you know, went through a very dark time and, and this book came out of him climbing out of, of, uh, of his, his dark time. Um, but it's about love of self and in family and kids and relationships and God and, uh, and all of these different kind of types of love that human beings experience. And it kind of tackles it from a science standpoint. And then from a, here's what science can't tell us at all about this phenomenon and it is it has helped me to love myself more um and uh and understand people in a much more empathetic way and i think for leadership for teamwork for family dynamics i can't recommend something better no i appreciate that <clears throat> something else I, <laughs> I, I i was trying to figure out if i could help you your to-do list i'm looking at it you're down to some hard ones so he has so shane has on his on his uh, web website, I'm sure you have it obviously in your personal somewhere in your house or whatnot is, is mm -hmm. a list of things. So for instance, eat at 50 New York city pizza joint, stuff like that. But some of the ones that he has not crossed off, conduct a citizen's arrest. Hopefully you're not arresting me. Um, meet the U S president. Oh, I'm going to do that one, but I'm excited about yeah. that. One. <laughs> I think you might be able to figure out how to stand on the Brooklyn bridge, be in a music video. I think that's not bad. Um, you know, go to space. That's, that's a, that's a tough one. And then set the zoo animals free. I, I think that would be incredible. Depending on which animal you set free, I probably won't be. And then don't come to the Cincinnati Zoo. But uh, yeah, I, I was we were, we were trying to figure out which one I could even be of assistance. But which one do you think's your next one that's open that you're going to be able to accomplish? Um, so I'm I'm a big Ryan Gosling fan, so I want to meet Ryan Gosling. That's on there. I think that one's probably like the circles that I'm running in now, that one's probably doable. Like I, I kind of hope he doesn't see that this is on uh, like my to-do list on my website, like it's sort of embarrassing. Um, being a music video, like where I, one of the, 
the companies that I'm involved in now actually shoots music videos. So at some point I will work my way into one. Um, those are the two that will probably happen. I think the one of all of them is so going to space, you know, hopefully we all live a long time and, and, and a lot of us can go to space. Setting the zoo animals free, I'll figure out a way to set at least a zoo animal free. But object at a wedding is the one that I, when I made this list, it's sort of is a list that's grown over the years, but it's been rather sta- in stasis the last few years. Um, but object at a wedding just seems like a thing to do in life that is like, that is like a human experience right there to like go out on a limb and object at a wedding in front of people. And it's the problem is the only weddings I get invited to are from really good people who I want to see get married. <laughs> so I just don't know if that one's ever going to happen. You got a wedding crash. I think you can do it. I think you, you go and you figure out a way to wedding crash and you just go in there and it's like the wedding yeah. crashers. You stand up. Who is that guy? Object. Don't do it. You got to find Maybe if I put this out there, like if you know someone that really should not be getting married, like right. these two people for both of their sakes, this should not happen. Find me. Sneak me in there and I'll object. I, I'll tell you what, you'll if I don't plan on getting divorced or remarried, but if I do, I think I'm just I'm one and done. So if I'm about to have a second wedding, you can come to it and just then say, I Kyle, don't do it. Just don't do it. You could knock it off the <laughs> list. Let's go to space. Let's find how to do that. You pull me, we go to space. On the before we go, yeah. we hit the zoo, knock out the animals, we jump on the uh on the spaceship and we're out rolling. And then no. the pilot turns around and it's Ryan Gosling. And You're it's right. all, it all comes together. Yeah, we're, we're, we're rocking it, brother. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate your time today. And I hope and I, and I know I should say someone listening, Shane, that listened to your story, you know, potentially today you might have saved or changed someone to see someone of your you know, success and your stature being so transparent with their challenges of the adversity you faced and your journey what we consider an underdog journey is is really appreciated so thank you so much thank you it's it's absolutely my pleasure thanks for listening to the underdog podcast please subscribe and rate our podcast on the apple and google podcast apps see you next week on the udp